This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, June 19, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. In today's podcast, we talk with candidate Michael Sinclair. Michael is running for a state Senate position in Missouri's 2nd District. We'll talk about his perspectives and his campaign, but first, have you ever thought that your vote doesn't count? With all the money dumped on some candidates, it's difficult for candidates without a lot of money to get noticed. And if they don't get noticed, you feel like you're throwing your vote away by supporting them, even if you agree with them. Or maybe you just don't bother voting at all. The problem is that your actions in this regard actually play into the hands of the big donors that dump their millions of dollars in the campaigns and all but drown out the candidates that truly support the people. In the end, you stop believing in the government because, after all, the country is run by rich people and the rest of us really don't have a chance. To make matters worse, the Supreme Court in their 2010 ruling, known as Citizens United, fortified the idea that those with money should have more influence in elections. They equated corporations with people, and therefore corporations have the First Amendment right to free speech. The game, it appears, is truly rigged. Well, all is not lost. You're not alone. You do have a way of fighting for our democracy. Greg Coleridge, the national co-director of Move to Amend, invites you to join the organization and help pass a constitutional amendment to end corporate rule and the corrupting influence of big money in elections. You can join Move to Amend and help create a movement toward a true democracy that serves all the people, not just the rich ones. You can find Move to Amend online at movetoamend.org. Get involved, get familiar with the organization, and then call your state congressional representative or senator and ask them to get involved. Again, that's movetoamend.org. So joining us now is Michael Sinclair, candidate for the Missouri Senate District 2. Michael has worked as a project manager and program manager for 20-plus years with organizations like Citigroup and MasterCard. He also owns a small real estate company in O'Fallon, Missouri. He's married and has two sons. His campaign slogan, featured prominently on his website, is equal rights and equal opportunities for all, no exceptions. Now, some background on this district. The 2nd District in Missouri contains much of the metropolitan area west of St. Louis on the other side of the Missouri River, it includes cities like O'Fallon and Wentzville, but it also includes some rural areas to the south, such as Defiance and Augusta, where there happen to be some excellent wineries, by the way, if you're ever down in that area. The district is highly Republican and is currently represented by an outgoing senator that prominently or proudly proclaims as adherence to fairly right-wing extremist views. Uh, the demographic of this, re of this region consists of approximately 85% white, 5% uh, black, and the rest being Asian, Native American, and Pacific Islander. The median household income is approximately $93,000, which is quite high when you compare it to the state median of about $57,000. High school graduation rate is upwards of 95%, and the college graduation rate is around 40%. 
The population of this area grew tremendously over the past few decades as primarily white people migrated from the St. Louis area over, to, over the river to the St. Charles County area. And as such, the region is strongly conservative Republican. The state Senate seat has been Republican going back over 20 years. And uh, overall, the Republican Party in Missouri has a supermajority in both chambers of Congress, which means that they have enough Republican votes to override a governor's veto if necessary. But the current governor is also a Republican, so a veto override is probably not really needed. It is in this environment that Michael Sinclair is running as a Democrat, so he has his work cut out for him. So, Michael, thank you for joining us on Democracy on the Move, and welcome to the program. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure. Good. Well, so in the introduction, you heard the comment about the demographics of the area that you seek to represent, uh, St. Louis itself, as well as geographically close communities off to your east. Well, they tend to be more democratic. But the further out you go, the more Republican it becomes. The area that you seek to represent is strongly Republican. And looking at the situation from the outside, I'd say you're the proverbial David going into battle with Goliath. So so what compels you to step up and take on a well-entrenched Republican Party? Absolutely happy to answer that. So, Dan, I, first of all, I like to swim against the tide. It excites me. Okay. So that's my one reason. It excites me. It's exciting to swim against the tide. Um, and the second thing, I, I noticed you mentioned the David and Goliath fight where you mentioned me as the David. So I like that because in the end, the David ended up winning mm-hmm. that fight. That's true. So so I am positive. Everything that you said is absolutely true. It's a, it's a Republican-dominated district. It's a red state. Um but I have lived in, in O'Fallon for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. I've raised a family here. I have used the facilities here. My boys have been to um, elementary, middle school, and high school. Um, so I've had firsthand experience of what life here is about. Mm-hmm. And as you also mentioned, I believe in positive politics. So um, I, while I've enjoyed living here, for 20 years, I also feel there is some room for improvement. And that's where I come in. There are a lot of things that I, I love about mm-hmm. about my, my city, about my district. Uh, but at the same time, I also see there are some rooms of room for improvement. Um, sure. And that's where I come in. Well, what um, what type of improvement? What what type sure. of improvements do you see? Because um, you know you have to be able to offer your constituents something that would compel them to you know try going with the Democratic Party for uh, for the state Absolutely. senate. Absolutely. So the for the if we see the most important current issue at hand. So when we talk about most important issues, we say life issues that involve life and death, right? Mm -hmm. Right now we are seeing gun violence. It is an epidemic and it involves life and death. So I believe as of today, everything else becomes second priority. We need to jointly work on gun violence issues. We need to look at the gun laws and say, what can we do to prevent one of our cities becoming another Uvalde, Texas? Mm -hmm. What are we doing towards it? What measures have our lawmakers taken since the incident at Uvalde, Texas? Those kind of things. So that is is my first priority. So Mm -hmm. 
Okay. As a state senator, where I want to focus on is, let's look at the current gun gun laws. Let's look at reforming them so we don't have to face what Uvalde, Texas had to face. And that's not happening today. Lawmakers are not doing it today. That's where I want to initiate a change. Yeah, they seem to be going in the opposite direction, actually. the uh, Recently, they passed this thing called the Second Amendment Protection Act, or SAPA for short. And that was actually on, um, they did a 60 Minutes uh, interview or a 60 Minutes um, uh, uh, special on this. I think it was last November. And almost unilaterally, uh, all police departments across the state hate this law because it basically says that the uh, local police departments are forbidden, forbidden from cooperating with federal agencies when it comes to enforcement of gun laws or, or even taking advantage of things like the ATF's uh, database and cooperating with them in researching people who are prone to violence. So uh, I think that'd be like one area that you'd want to really uh, dive into right away. Definitely, definitely. And, and as I was having the chat with you earlier, we Republicans and Democrats need to find common ground mm -hmm. and see where is that common ground and how we can protect lives. That is the most important thing. Yeah. And we, need, we don't have a choice. We have to do it. But what do you say to people that are on the Republican side, they, they oftentimes, and, and, and Democrats are guilty of this too, but I, I see it, I, I pick on the Republicans a lot more because I think they're far more guilty of it, but they will misrepresent the opposing side. They will, you know, it, it's, it's um, I think it's called a, a straw man argument or something, where they'll say, well, you know, the Democrats are coming in to take our guns. And, you know, yeah. nothing could be further from the truth, I feel, anyways, but uh, but that's the way it's presented anyways. And that's sort of the soundbite that everybody latches onto in these in these highly Republican districts. Correct. So, and, and you're right. I see all these ads on TV also, where they are picking on something, um, which is not in favor of the other candidate and continuously projecting that. My, my, my take on this is I would, as a voter, I want candidates to tell me what you are going to do for me. Don't keep telling me what the other guy is not going to do for me. Mm -hmm. I want to know as a voter, I want to know what you are going to do for me. Yeah. And as a representative also, I want to, again, I want to run my campaign on positive politics. Mm -hmm. I, I want to share with the voters what I bring to the table. What is my skill set? Why they should vote for me? That will be the focus of my campaign. And that's how I would, I would go about the campaign. Okay. So you're using this expression a lot, positive politics. And if you look on your website, it, it, it talks a lot about po positive politics. Um, what does that mean insofar as how it will affect your actions as a state senator? Sure. So positive. when I say positive politics, I say Republicans and Democrats in the state of Missouri, in the district, we, we know there's a good Republican representation. There is a decent uh, Democratic representation also. Mm -hmm. So we need to work together. We need to find common ground, find that common ground, and then start building on that common ground on how we can progress further. Like I said, one is the gun control, right? Yeah. We know there are a lot of places where we as Democrats and Republicans disagree, but let us 
put some time and effort in where do we agree yeah and how we can save lives kids women children how we can save their lives how we can prevent the next gun massacre from happening in our city yeah. let's find that and work towards it now the differences are there i'm not saying we can ignore those differences they can stay that's fine right. but let's find common ground and work towards a positive growth of our district okay and our state so the common ground in so far as as uh, second amendment goes is um is i think with a lot of people including the person whom i, I believe you're likely to face in the election in november um I don't think there is a common ground. I don't see a common ground yeah. with with, uh, with that with with a fairly extremist perspective. And and to your point, though, I think there are a lot of Republicans out there that are that are reasonable and, and willing to talk about it. And in mm-hmm. fact, majority of people, it has been shown in polls, majority of people do want some form of gun regulation, do want some form of uh, you know background checks and so on. Um, Absolutely. But it's certainly hard to to fight when somebody doesn't even acknowledge that fact, you know, that, that most people want uh, common sense gun regulation. Yes. Uh, so how yes. do you, I mean, it, and particularly in your district, I think it's really difficult because it is extremely conservative. And, um, you know, the, the outgoing senator, I really don't want to mention his name, but uh, he's, no. he's not one of my favorite guys because he is pretty extremist in that regard. And he's, he's actually a doctor too, by the way. But, Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, uh, you know, it's, it, it confuses me how, you know, you can, you can go on after situations like Uvalde and, and say that, you know, it's still the right of everybody to own a firearm. And that is not what the second amendment says in, in my opinion. Correct. So Correct. I mean, how do you, where do you start with finding common ground in a situation like that? Sure. Absolutely. It's a valid point. Um, so what I, as, like I said, I've been living in O'Fallon for about 20 years, raising a family here, working here, owning a small business here. I know most of the people are tired of extreme politics, mm-hmm. whether it's extreme Democrats, extreme Republicans. There's just too much hatefulness going out there and people are getting tired of it. Yeah. You know, it is very draining. So as a Democrat, even I don't, appreciate extreme Democrat who will oppose anything and everything that the Republicans have to say. And I know there's a whole lot of Republicans who are also willing to look on the other side of the aisle and say, hey, even though this this is coming from the Democrats, but it makes sense. Mm-hmm. It may end up saving my life. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So so then, then they will go for it. So that's that's my stand on extreme politics. The other thing is I myself, I'm a Democrat, but I'm also a gun owner. Mm-hmm. I own a gun. I use a gun at the recreation facility. But because I'm a gun owner, I'm also in favor of common sense gun reforms. Mm-hmm. Anything that will help protect me, my family, my children from a gun violence, a gun massacre, I'm on for that. And that's what, what the Republicans need to understand. Uh, uh, basically, everybody needs to understand that don't wait for something so severe to happen in your city before we say, oh, my God, we need gun reforms. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, then it, uh, then it comes time to start pointing fingers, and that's what you don't really want to do. You want to head it off at the pass, as they say. Um, something else on your website, which, which compels me to ask you this question, uh, in, in terms of you, you talk about equality, equality for all. And what do you mean by that? I mean, how has our nation sure. fallen short in terms of its commitment to equality? Sure. So I'm a Christian by faith. And I have learned that God created everybody equal. Mm-hmm. Once God has created everybody equal, we have no business changing that model. Mm-hmm. So when I say equality for all, when we talk about rights, are we giving the same rights to everybody, irrespective of their race, their color, their religious belief? Are there some gaps there? If they are, we need to address them. Mm-hmm. The second piece of equality is opportunities. Are we giving the same opportunities to everybody across the board? Whites, blacks, browns, people from Asian descent, Native Americans, everybody and every, I mean, there should be no distinction. That's what I'm, I'm talking about. And all in all, I think U.S. is doing a good job in general. Most of the states are doing a good job. But again, I believe there is room for improvement, and mm-hmm. we need to work towards that. Well, we talk about opportunities. Education is one of the places where I really uh, have to interject in here because it's it's it, this takes place in Missouri, and it also takes place in several other states. I lived in California, and it was similar out there, where uh, the local community subsidizes their schools based on property. On their on their uh, property taxes and the property taxes are based is based on the property value, and mm-hmm. uh, so you get mm-hmm. into this this uh, downward spiral sometimes when your your uh, your area uh, for some reason let's say property values start to go down, subsidies for schools start to go down as the schools uh, lose their their primary teachers or lose their their services or fall behind on their maintenance or whatever. It degrades the value of the school, which then most people will say, well, you know, this school's uh, not doing so well compared to other schools. Um, So they leave and or they stay, but their property value continues to fall because of that. And you get this sort of, you know, falling property value means falling schools, falling schools means falling property value. And this is, you know, a downward spiral right here. How do we put an end to that in Missouri here? Because I know... There is a there is a big equation that the people in in Jefferson City, that Missouri's capital, uses to figure out you know how much um, how much funding goes to each school, but uh, boy yeah. oh boy that's been under attack recently because you know there's a lot of movement toward uh, funding of private schools with public money. Uh, that's not only just private like parochial schools, but also you know charter schools and things like that. This seems to make the situation worse. It it contributes to that downward spiral. So. Um, a, do you agree with this? And B, is this something that you, you feel compelled to do something about as well? So number one, I definitely need to do more research in this area. I, I know a little bit um, about what you just talked about. But in general, I can say, I think anytime we talk about public funding for private school, right? Mm-hmm. I think we need to address it on a case-to-case basis rather than a blanket coverage we need to understand what is the rationale behind it what is the data what what is the need 
instead of a blanket coverage and if there is a very compelling reason for a few schools to use public funding then yes go ahead with it mm-hmm. so so i would say for these kind of situations we shouldn't go with the blanket um coverage but rather a case to case situation okay yeah. Yeah. So, that, but I guess the problem with that, though, mm-hmm. is that, you know, put that on top of what um, recently in Missouri, and you've seen it yourself, how, you know, you, you have two kids in school um, these days, and you, you see how, you know, your school, well, actually, the schools in your areas, in your areas doing quite well, uh, mm-hmm. but areas, other areas in, in uh, Missouri, throughout Missouri, and, um, well, I guess you're just going to, pay attention to your own area. I mean, that's what your constituents want you to. But the, but the bigger picture is that there are other areas in mm-hmm. Missouri that um, I, I think would suffer because of that. Because, you know, if you're, if you're vectoring private money, uh, even any amount of private money in, uh, uh, I'm sorry, public money into private schools, that does take away from people that don't have that choice, that don't have the private schools available to them. Yeah, and I agree. So in this case, like you said, if there is a compelling argument to be made, that in this case, channeling public money to a private school is actually hurting the other public schools in that community, absolutely, it's a no-brainer then. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. That, That's why I said, unless there is a compelling reason Mm -hmm. of, of of that channel, we cannot agree to it. If it is at the cost of hurting the current public school, absolutely. It's public school and public money needs to go to public school. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm interested to know what is the compelling argument? What is the need? What is the reason? How? What are the pros and cons of doing it in a particular district? And then go about it. Okay. Now, I want to get back to equality a little bit here. There's something that, um, that's that been in this country for quite some time. I don't know if you were even born when the Equal Rights Amendment came out. I don't know what your age is. but uh, equal- I'm, I'm 52. I was born in 1970. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I'm still a little bit older than you, but I won't say how older. <laughs> but, uh, but there's this thing called the Equal Rights Amendment, which, which it came to a vote in the late 1970s, and uh, there was a agreement in, within Congress, U.S. Congress at that point, that if it gets ratified by, um, I think it was 38 states, that it would become the next amendment to the Constitution, which I believe would be the 28th, I'm not sure. And um, so they never got enough states. They, they gave themselves an extension to 1982, and they still didn't make enough states. But in 2020, the state of Virginia uh, ratified the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, which put them at 38. So now they have enough states. But the problem is that the self-imposed deadline that Congress put on themselves has expired by like 40 years. So um, Mm. it's still kind of stuck. Now, Missouri is one of the states that has not ratified equal rights amendment. Would you, in in the the spirit of equality, would you support at least uh, floating it in front of Missouri Congress to support the equal rights amendment if for no other reason to put Missouri on, on what I believe is going to be the correct side of history here. Sure. So I would definitely take a look at the entire amendment. What what is the what all are the terms and conditions as part of that amendment? And all in all, if it is 
all about equal rights, equal opportunities. Absolutely. I will do everything that I can to move it forward. Okay. That's good. I'm not sure it's going to make a difference. I think that uh, the uh, the federal government still has to figure out how to um, how to push this thing across the finish line. I kind of wish that now that they have, um, you know, supposedly more progressive elements in Congress in the U.S. Congress at this point. I was sort of hoping that they would push this thing over the finish line because technically they can. All they have to do is just uh, uh, release themselves from that self-imposed deadline of uh, I think it was 1982. Um, mm. but you know, here we are. Okay. So you talked a little bit about religion. Your, 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 your faith is, is Christian religion, but Christian religion also has a, what I would say is maybe a dark side. People talk about this thing called Christian nationalism and, mm-hmm. uh, the extreme left fears it because they see the replacement of our democracy by an exclusionary form of theocracy bordering on fascism. And the extreme right sees it as a natural tendency to fulfill God's wish through a process called immunitizing the eschaton. I had to look that one up. And I actually borrowed that phrase from Josh Hawley, who, by the way, penned (laughs) penned this article back in 2010 that talks specifically about the virtue of rendering a sort of heaven on earth as part of his political uh, motivation. So yeah. where do you stand in this issue? I mean, what part does or should uh, Christianity play in our politics? Sure, sure. So you're right. I'm a, I'm a Protestant Christian. I was raised as a Protestant Christian. And not just because I was raised, I, have, I, I believe I have a one-on-one relationship with God. That's my true belief because I, I, see, his, I see his presence. I feel his presence. I communicate with God and I see God answering to my communications. So, so that's my faith. Mm-hmm. And I know my faith has, what I have learned as a Christian is, of course, we already talked about the fact that everybody was created equal by God. Mm-hmm. And he, will, he also has been teaching about the love for human beings. Mm-hmm. Love your neighbors, treat them right respect them do unto others what you want others to do to you mm-hmm. if you keep spreading violence that means you are asking for violence in return if you keep spreading love that means now you're asking for love mm-hmm. so that's what i believe in I, I i believe christianity the the only time when we are propagating violence in the name of christianity is trying to mislead people mm-hmm. trying to misrepresentation misrepresent what Christianity does. So that's, that's my belief. And I'm 52 years old. I've been reading the Bible as a child since I was a child. Um, And I, I know, and I understand the teachings of Christ. It is not about violence. It is about if somebody slaps you on one cheek, show them the other cheek also. Mm -hmm. That's what I have learned. So, and that's what I believe in. Okay. Well, then I guess, uh, where does this, where do you see this thing called Christian nationalism coming from then? Because that is not uh, oh, a yeah. turn the other cheek it's, sort of philosophy, though, is it? It's a misrepresentation of the Christian religion faith. It is an absolute misrepresentation to benefit your own agenda. Mm-hmm. It is as simple as that. To mislead people to benefit your own agenda. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So let's uh, talk about a related issue then, because um, people tend to tie the subject of abortion into Christianity. And now we all mm -hmm. know about this leaked document from the Supreme Court recently that gave some insight as to what their thinking is when it comes to overturning Roe v. Wade. And here it is. Missouri is one of 13 states that have what we call trigger laws that go into effect once Roe is overturned. And trigger laws are laws that uh, that automatically go into effect if some situation should yeah. occur. And in this case, yeah. the overturning of Roe would result in the immediate outlawing of abortion in Missouri. Uh, yes. What's your stand on that? And uh, what could you as a senator do about, uh, well, are you motivated to do anything about it at this point? And uh, what, if anything, would you, what, Absolutely. What are you motivated and, to do? And, and I'm glad you asked because this is, another hot topic and, and, and a big issue that we are faced with. And I would encourage encourage folks who are who are listening to this podcast, who will be listening to this podcast to go visit my website and see my stand on abortion. So I've laid it out very clearly in writing also on my website under under platforms. So as I said, I'm a Christian by faith and I believe in the sanctity of life. I believe in the sanctity of life, but at the same time, I also believe that a decision to abort or keep a child is not a decision that can be enforced on anybody, and it should not be enforced on anybody. So it is not a simple yes and no situation when we talk about pro-life or pro-choice. It's not that simple. If, if it was that simple, we wouldn't be having a discussion about it. So what my, my stand is anytime a woman is faced with the dilemma of whether to abort a child or not abort a child or to keep a child, they have to see the abortion should always be the last choice and never the first choice. Mm -hmm. That's one. The person who is undergoing the situation needs to explore all the support that the federal government and the state government is offering. And, and then make a decision. If you see, yes, I have enough support to keep the child, I say, go, go with it because keep it as your first choice. But if you do decide to go with an abortion, that's your choice. And at that point of time, we all need to respect it. It's, and the other thing that I want to say is, I think women need to take a more leading role in the laws relating to abortion. Mm -hmm. I think they are educated, they are smart, and men need to take a backseat and let the women make these decisions mm -hmm. about abortion. And when I say make this decision, it's not just a household decision. Beyond that, about passing laws, about how this whole concept of abortion should be handled, let women have a prime voice in that, uh, in, in the lawmaking process yeah. relating to abortions. But do you... Um, just to get, to get down to more detail, though, but what it, what would be your, I don't know, I guess, do you have like a cutoff point? Let's say, because this is one thing, and I actually heard Pete Buttigieg give a pretty good answer to this question, but um, I'll ask you the same question here is, what would be your cutoff point? I mean, do you, do you say after a certain period of time, uh, a woman would then have to forfeit her right? Because in, in the extreme, I've seen Republicans say things like, uh, and I'm talking about yeah. the extreme Republicans. I'm not talking about the, the the main party, but the extremists will say things like, 
outlawing uh, or, or talking about, you know, uh, abortion just before childbirth or something like that, which in my mind becomes emphasized. So um, where, I mean, where's your gut feeling on that? I'm not saying, you know, I don't want you to commit to any sort of you know policy at this point, but what's your right. gut feeling about that? So I wish I had a clear answer on this. What should be the cutoff point? Because I need more data. I need more research. I need, I, I need to do a, a lot more research and gather data and read it and absorb it before I can make that decision. However, once as a state senator, if, if we are having a discussion about where should the cutoff point be, then I will use all the data, all the research that is available to us, present it, and then make a good fact-based decision. Mm -hmm. Today, I don't have all those facts because I haven't taken the time to do all that level of research, yeah. but I want to, and I'm slowly doing it, mm -hmm. and, and, and I will continue doing it. Um, okay. So that's where I stand. Okay. Yeah, I heard, um, you know, just the FYI, I heard an interview by with Pete Buttigieg, um, must have been a few years ago now, but I thought he had a pretty good answer because <laughs> and it's it's kind of ringing in my head right now because it's been my late, it's influenced my latest thinking. But he said basically he said he said look if a woman decides after fifteen weeks she's you know if she's carrying it to that point and beyond she's already made the decision to have the baby and the only thing that could then change that decision is horrific information regarding the status of her pregnancy. You know, either her mm. life is in danger or the child's life is in danger or something. And then mm. she has to make, hopefully in, in, in consultation with the father, but, uh, but ultimately alone, she has to make that decision as, you know, between her and her doctor has to make a decision as to which direction to go at that point. I thought that was a pretty good thing because, you know, it says basically, yeah, I think, you know, once a, once a person, once a woman gets to that point of, absolutely knowing that she's pregnant and she's made that commitment to care that child to term, there's only one thing that can interfere with it at that point, And that is the, getting that terrible, terrible news. And that's not a place sure. where the government should be jumping in and saying, you know, dictating to her what, what decisions she can make or what she can't make. Hmm. It is a, it is a good argument from what you've stated. And thanks for sharing those details. Definitely a good argument. However, I want to club it with the other arguments also, mm -hmm. and then then make a good informed decision. Okay. But definitely, it sounds like a good argument. Yeah, it's it's influenced my my thinking lately because you know I've I've been wrestling with this in my mind for for years now. You know, and sure. um, you know I've um, I have a son as well. He's twenty seven, and um, you know I'm just uh, I thank God every day that he's on this earth and. Uh, uh, sure. certainly has enriched my life and hopefully, uh, I've been able to enrich his life. Um, I don't know if that's the case or not. We'll see if I get a phone call cause today's father's day. And if he calls me and oh, says yes, happy yes. father's day, then <laughs> maybe it's a sign of success. I don't know. Most um, of you will definitely you will. And happy father's day, by the way. <laughs> happy father's day to you too. You have uh, two Thank sons. You. Are they both in high school now I or what, what age are they? So my older one, he just graduated high school and he's getting ready for college. Good. And my younger one will be a sophomore this yeah. year. Okay. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's move on here. I've got um, another issue that comes up on your site right here. I'm just kind of perusing your site as we talk here. But you talk about immigration, America, the land of the immigrants. 
for the immigrants. Mm-hmm. And this is a hot button issue today as well. Uh, a lot of people want to you know, build the wall with Mexico, which I think is an exercise in futility because um, there's one thing I know about walls throughout history. Uh, no sooner do you build it than they get breached. So they're, yes. they're kind of, I mean, they're, they're, it's a waste, you know. It's, it's true. I mean, you, you challenge anyone to, okay, here's a here's a 25-foot steel wall. Let's see you break through it. Like, sure, I could probably do it in an afternoon. I'd get a ladder or something. You know, right. Dig a hole underneath. I mean, this is like, this is medieval uh, stuff, right? So, but uh, but what is, uh, but what what is your opinion on, on immigration? Do you kind of give us a brief description of where you are? Sure. Again, I would... Encouraging all, encourage all the people to to go to my website and look at what I've noted there. But like you said, you've been you're reading it as we speak. So America, as much as I, I know of America, it's a land of immigrants. So maybe uh, that's what I've known. That's what I've seen. So how how can a land of immigrants stop immigrants from contributing to the society and making this country great? Mm-hmm. You know, um, that's my stand. So, of course, we want to follow a process. Of course, we don't want to knowingly let people in who are going to harm the country or the people of this country. Of course, it's a given. That's mm-hmm. that's just common sense. But then why are we going to stop the people who deserve and are and are willing to go through that entire process of coming into this country. I also followed the process Mm -hmm. and I'm contributing to the economy and I'm also receiving the benefits that the country has to give to me. Mm -hmm. Right. Then. So why are we saying we cannot, a land of immigrants cannot stop deserving immigrants from coming and contributing to the society. That's one. The other thing is what I believe in. And correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. What I believe in is if somebody is not a Native American, then they are an immigrant American. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. Yeah. If you're not a Native American, you have you are an immigrant American. You have immigration immigrant American heritage. Yeah. We can be in denial. We can keep ignoring it. But that's a fact. So now why are you stopping other immigrants to come in? Because your grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, they were immigrants too. So you have an immig- uh, immigrant heritage too. Yeah. Okay. That, that's where I stand. Okay. Well, I think one of the problems though now is you know, we have an overwhelming number of people immigrating from Central America you know, going through, you know, these so-called caravans coming through Mexico and appearing Mm -hmm. on U.S. soil. And the way the U.S. laws are written is as soon as they step foot on U.S. soil, they have a right to be heard. And uh, Mm. I'm all for that. You know, I think these people are fleeing from uh, desperate situations, both economically and and physically. They're being physically threatened where they are. Um. But it's really a matter of numbers, though, isn't it? I mean, it's. I can see why people want to build the wall because they don't want to deal with this issue. But walls, as we said before, I think anyway, they're completely worthless. They're a waste of money. But the uh, but the sentiment behind it, I sort of understand. Uh, it's just a matter of numbers, and can our society absorb 
people who are coming in that don't have um, the, the skills that are that would put them immediately employed and contribute to this country. Um, or maybe they do. I don't know, because I've known a lot of uh, when I used to live in California. I mean, let's just face it. A lot of people in California are illegal immigrants and you see them mm-hmm. a lot, you know, doing they're, they're the invisible people. I call them. They um, mm. they work the janitorial shifts at night or they're out in the fields during the day. I mean, they and, and they work hard. There's no question in my mind they work hard. But still, you know, right. they're unaccounted for and there's an overwhelming number coming. So. Um, how do we stop that? How do we deal with this this overflow of people coming up from the Absolutely. southern border? Absolutely. And I am definitely against illegal immigration. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I am for following the process. We have laws. We have processes in place. And if there are gaps in those laws and in those processes, then we need to work towards addressing those gaps and 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 those laws that's that's one piece now if there's an influx of 100000 people who are waiting to get into the country i don't think we should just open the gate and say let everybody come in mm-hmm. but at the same time we need to see who are the ones who are deserving is there a family of 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 a husband wife and child who are genuinely if is their life in danger and can we protect that life? If yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If there's a compelling reason, if by opening the border for these four people, I have actually saved them from getting killed, then yes, I should let them in. And then again, go through the process yeah. of what they can contribute. Do they have any criminal history? If they have criminal history, then again, the process will take care of that. Yeah. So look at these people and let the deserving one come come in now if i know this is a time bound thing but that that's what it is we have to respect that if it takes one year for the for us to process that application we have to respect that yeah let's follow the process yeah and it, it goes back to you know the, the feeling of christianity too right you lend a hand to people and i and i think most people in america are willing to do that i, I maybe i'm naive but but uh, I think most people in America are willing to do that. It's just, like I say, it's the numbers. It's, it's the sheer numbers of people coming over now. And I think that there sure. are situations taking place in Central, not I think, I know there are situations taking place in Central America, which are largely right. the result of a lot of, of, of imperialism, leftover imperialism that has right. uh, displaced a lot of people, uh, put them into situations where their lives are in danger. And mm-hmm. um, there is some obligation, I think, on this country's part to, uh, if not rectify that or help them rectify that in their native country, at least to allow the refugees to uh, find uh, uh, safety in, in our country. But uh, sure. but again, it takes money, it takes a lot of time, and it takes um, you know a lot of willpower to do this. So um, good. Yeah. Let's move on. There's one other thing, too, I want to cover here. The, a big one is health care. Um, where do you stand on health care? I know that, uh, you know, the classic Democratic uh, position, well, I should say the, the left wing of the Democratic Party wants um, Medicare for all or universal health care or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. I think the mainstream Democrats don't necessarily 
feel that compelled in that direction. A lot of them are getting uh, lobby money from from insurance mm. companies out there, so that kind of uh, clouds the vision. Uh, Republicans, mm. most of, of Republicans, I would say, would probably avoid uh, Medicare for all. Uh, where do you come mm-hmm. down on this on this issue? Sure. Um, when it comes to healthcare, I believe we are years and years and years behind, light years behind from other countries. Now, why do I say that? We see countries like Cuba, like UK, like Canada, European European countries. Mm-hmm. They are already providing free healthcare to all their all of their citizens. free healthcare. America, why is America not thinking about that? I believe our end goal is free medical care for everybody who lives in America. That's the end goal. Now to get to that end goal, it takes time and effort. But are we even working towards that? We keep introducing these new schemes and these new policies where we are saying improving healthcare. I say, let's give talk about free healthcare for every single citizen. That should be the goal. If Cuba can do it, if UK can do it, if Canada can do it, why can't we do it? We have to do it. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, I've, uh, I've, uh, I think that's that's a bit of a paradigm shift for the nation. But I think honestly, I think that's the way we're heading. You know, I'm almost to the point right now of getting uh, Medicare just because of my age. So I've kind of given away a little bit more information about my age here. But yeah, um, but uh, yeah, I've, I've, uh, I see what you're saying there. Good. Yeah. Uh, but, co- but at the same time, that's that said, this is not something we can bring into effect tomorrow or one month or even one year from now. Yeah. In the meantime, what we have to do is let's try and get medic- good, decent medical access to everybody who has a need, not mm-hmm. just people who have money. To everybody who needs medical access, we need to provide the medical access. Those are the policies we need to work on, irrespective of how much money they are making. Yeah. They should have access to decent health care. They should not have to worry about it. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the hot button issues for me personally is is the fact that many hospitals in the rural areas, hospitals and, and care centers in the rural areas have been shutting their doors. And mm. there's there's all kinds of reasons for that. Uh, a lot of people say, well, it's because if we had Medicare for all, they, they wouldn't shut their doors. Well, I don't think it's quite that simple mm. either. But um, mm. but the situation is getting desperate because, you know, I. I I know you probably don't deal with it too much in the in the second Senate district in Missouri, but there are districts that are, you know, in the middle of Nebraska or in the middle of Missouri, Nebraska, Iowa, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and these people, um, you know, working on a farm or whatever. And farm work is dangerous, you know, and yes. and it's uh, it's risky. And um, and even if it's not directly related to farm work, let's say suddenly somebody comes down with, um, you know, type one diabetes or something, um, you know, and that is a desperate situation that you need, <clears throat> you need a me- immediate medical attention. And Absolutely. if you think, if you just say, well, I'll just, it's just a cold, I'll shake it off, you know, and, and you just get worse mm-hmm. and worse to the point where you can't even drive anymore to, you know, and then that's, then it's too late. So, um, yeah, you know your your nearest medical facility might be two hundred miles away. So getting there 
you know, even for a regular checkup is a hard thing to do. So, yeah. um, yeah, I, this yeah. is, this is one area which I really would like you to focus on, uh, were you to make sure. the, uh, the, the Senate, um, really, and I'm I, glad you're sharing that with me. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's a big concern of mine. I have some personal reasons for that, uh, myself. So, um, mm. I've, I've actually met a lot of people in desperate situations and, uh, I've been through it with my son too. He had a, a pretty desperate situation and luckily mm. he's living in Southern California. So he had doctors all around him, but, uh, I shudder to think what would happen had he been, um, you know, in the proverbial middle of nowhere without uh, yeah. immediate access and, and with people, without people around him to care for him right away, that would have been a deadly situation for him. Um, yeah. Okay, so uh, I, I, we're kind of going over our time here, so I want to wrap it up a little bit here, but I want to get a, a, an issue on the table here regarding the DNC. Um, what sort of support are you getting from the DNC at this point in terms of your campaign? So far, uh, none, because I think I'm early in the game, so the support that I'm getting is from St. Charles County Democrats okay. Committee. So they have been very supportive. We have been meeting regularly. Um, they have been supporting uh, in terms of the knowledge, the logistics, um, the networking. Plus, they have also donated a little bit towards the campaign, like they do for all candidates. Okay. DNC, I have not reached out to them. They haven't reached out to me, but um, but it is on on the on my to do list with my campaign manager. I need to sit down and. And start talking about what the what are the touch points? How do we need to reach out to them and request for support? Okay, yeah, you're you're the only one on the Democratic ticket in the uh, the uh, the primaries coming up. I think it's August second or August third, one of the two. Um, yeah. yeah, and so I don't think the DNC itself is going to be too worried about your position right now. Uh, mm -hmm. The real question is that I think there's two people on the uh, on the Republican side that have to battle it out over the uh, primaries, and then things will start getting serious uh, after the primaries in August. That okay. is true. So, uh, where can people go to learn more about uh, about you, your campaign, and what you plan to do, and uh, your plank and everything else? Where can people go to get more information? Sure, Dan. So, almost every topic that we discussed, I have also stated it out on my website. It is www.sinclairforsenate.com Okay. It's all one word, Sinclair, F-O-R, Sinclairforsenate.com. That is correct. Sinclairforsenate.com. And pretty much all the issues we talked about are there in details on my website. There is, uh, on my homepage, there is an option to donate towards my campaign, and I would request the folks to donate to the campaign so I can continue to move, move my campaign forward. There is also an option to join me through my website. You can go ahead and join me on my Twitter, on my Facebook to know what's going on in my campaign and how, how I'm addressing the current issues. Um, as much information that you need, you can get from these three sources, from the website, from my Twitter account, from my, uh, from my Facebook account. And I would encourage folks to go uh, to see, learn more about me, my family, what I stand for, what are, what is my platform, and then make a informed decision. Whether you are a Democrat, whether you are a Republican, arm yourself with the knowledge, and then make an informed decision about who you want to elect as your representative. 
Good. You know, what I really like talking with you, uh, the, the best thing I like about talking with you, Michael, is that uh, you are so logical and, um, you know, you're, you're, you're pretty open, too. You're saying, you know, if, if you, you know, make a decision, make an informed decision. Wow. And that's kind of refreshing. It shouldn't be, but it's kind of a refreshing thought these days. Like, hey, maybe we ought to have all the facts before we make a decision here. So uh, thank you. Dan. Uh, I like thank what you're you. Saying. As voters, we have to do that is the minimum responsibility we have. Yeah. As voters, we need to learn about our representatives and then may don't just vote for the party. Learn more about the candidates also, yeah. what they stand for. How can they represent you? We need the voters need to ask that question. How can this person represent me? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I count myself as an independent anyways, because I, I do the same thing and I voted, you know, for generally for Republicans in, in the distant past, but uh, leaning more toward the Democrats in the current uh, cycles. Um, but uh, yeah, I do the same thing, you know, figure out who the person is, uh, talk to them if you can, meet them if you can, and uh, get informed with all the facts and then, you know, fill in the box for the person you want. Uh, don't, don't vote straight party. Just fill in the box for the person you want. It'll do the best for you. Yeah. Absolutely. And one of the things I know we touched upon earlier was the Second Amendment. One of the things that I feel here is, and the voters need to know this, that if you go and see the data out there, it's also on my Twitter, on my Facebook account. Missouri lawmakers have been getting millions of dollars in donations from the NRA and yes. other gun, gun lobbies, right? Yeah. When somebody gets four or five million dollars in donation during their career, that person effectively starts working for that organization. Yes. And they start implementing the agenda of that organization. It's just, it is what it is because I am implementing the agenda of the organization and in return, I'm getting a paycheck in form of, form of donation. So that's, that's my stand that we need to be, we need to understand It'll be very hard for people who are getting donations from the gun lobby to pass any kind of laws that will prevent sales of guns, yeah. in, which is and indirectly, which will fuel gun violence. Yeah. So that's something we need to work on. Yeah, there's uh, another organization called OpenSecrets.org. I'm sure you're familiar with mm -hmm. them as well. They they summarize yes. all the campaign donations that they know of. I mean, there's a lot of dark money out there, too, that, that they can't even track because it just gets too convoluted uh, going through all kinds of nonprofit organizations and such. But uh, the the uh, donations that they can track uh, appear on their website. It's a great service for democracy. That, that's OpenSecrets.org. Highly yes. recommend people take a look at that because, yeah, it's like you say, I mean, I've always had this joke that people on the uh, Senate floor whether it's a state senate or, or a state representative or or federal, um, they should be they should be required to wear jackets. That's like race car drivers, right? So they have patches in the back of their jackets. <laughs> That's from, from their different sponsors. That would be such an eye opener. <laughs> and the bigger the donation, the bigger the patch. Exactly, exactly. It's like a race car, man. Like going to NASCAR, NASCAR or something. Oh gosh, oh. Yeah. that'd be good. We've been, uh, we've been talking with Michael Sinclair, candidate for Missouri State Senate District 2. 
Uh, Michael, it's been a pleasure to talk with you today. Uh, I know we've gone over our, our allotted time, but um, you know it was such an interesting conversation. It just seemed like five minutes went by, and here we are. We're already at the end of our time. So thank you for joining us today, Michael. Dan, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you, sharing about my campaign, my platform, Good. and looking forward to your support and looking forward to the folks who are going to listen to this podcast. Looking forward to your support. Good. And good luck on your campaign. Thank you. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in again next week.